0: Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Somebody, well, more than one uh, person has asked me uh, if I might preach in the middle a few times instead of in the pulpit. And uh, I will just mention that the main reason that I've been almost exclusively in the pulpit is just to make it easier for the video recording. Interestingly, some people really like uh, the the pastor in the pulpit and others like the on the chancel and uh, certainly when we are able to return to worship again, I'll uh, have the habit of doing both from time to time. This morning, uh, we are continuing uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke, and our reading is from the 12th chapter, beginning in the 49th verse. These words Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother in law against her daughter in law, and daughter in law against her mother in law. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, It is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Some years ago, I asked uh, a retired preacher in the congregation that I was then serving to guest preach. Though he did not have a reputation as being a particularly gifted preacher, he offered a phenomenal sermon. I know because I was there to hear it. He said that whenever we cross the threshold of the sanctuary into worship, We need to remember that we are entering into the presence of the living God. Which means, he said, that we have to die to our own selfish desires and wants and needs so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. He offered a couple great examples. Uh, imagine he said that you walk into a sanctuary and you find that somebody has gotten there before you is sitting in your preferred seat or pew. If we have died to self, we would not respond with irritation or disappointment, but rather we'd think I am so glad that someone else is getting to sit in the best seat in the house for worship this morning. Or if we've died to self and the music director lifts up that we'll be singing a new song, a different song, an unfamiliar song in worship, our our first thought would be, Oh, good, how blessed I am today that I will get to, as Psalm 33, verse 3 declares to sing a new song unto the Lord. Finally, if the pastor says something that really pushes our buttons, consider that that pastor might, might actually be preaching the gospel, and that, that discomfort is actually an invitation to growth. C.S. Lewis once pointed out, the perfect worship service would be the one we are most unaware of because our attention would have been on God alone. Again, not our own preferences and desires. So perhaps a a good reminder would require us uh, to change the way that we Uh, start worship with a a greeting, we'd have a greeting that's something like this, welcome to worship, prepare to die. You know, this aligns with what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 6, that when we are immersed into the waters of baptism, a, a Christian dies to their former self, so that we too might walk in the newness of life. Or as Jesus says in, in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to go through, and I will suffer until it is over. Now, the baptism that, that Jesus is speaking of is his death. And so, in the first few centuries of of Christianity, converts saw baptism as death. Not, of course, as the physical expiration of the physical body, but certainly uh, to life and into life as it had been pre-baptism. For these early Christians, dying to oneself through baptism meant turning away from other allegiances. Once initiated, the Christian's life was to be based solely upon their relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth. And among other things, these early converts saw baptism as a severing Of family ties. One sociology professor begins his course, his college course on the family by reading a letter that was written to a government official. The the father writes that his once obedient son had gotten mixed up in a weird new religion that had totally taken over this, this boy's, his son's life. The cult This cult had caused his son to forsake his friends and it had even turned him against his family. That letter was written in the third century by a father who was complaining about a religious group known as the Christians. The vast majority of early Christian converts were viewed through that lens. They were unhinged fanatics who made everyone in the family, not to mention the government, uncomfortable. In the Roman society of the second and third century, uh, being a Christian made you both morally suspect and an enemy of the public good, automatically. In the year 202, in the African city of Carthage, a 22 year old aristocrat, Vivia Perpetua, was baptized. When a magistrate later asked her if she was a Christian, Perpetua confessed, was arrested, and sentenced to die in the public arena a Christian was a capital offense. That was the law and order of the day. Perpetua's upper-class uh, family was mortified. In her diary, she wrote, Well, under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolve. But when she refused to denounce her conversion, Perpetua wrote... My father was so angry, he started towards me as though he would tear out my eyes, but then he laughed. On the day when prisoners were to be interrogated for a final time, Perpetua's father brought her infant son, pleading with her to renounce her conversion. Perpetua refused and was martyred. I wonder if mentioning that infant son comes as a surprise to you who are listening. In today's reading, Jesus talks about the discord that he will create. He says, do you think I came to bring peace to earth? No, I can guarantee that I came to bring nothing but division From now on, a family of five will be divided. Three will be divided against two, and two against three. In Matthew's version of this same story, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but the sword. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be the member's of one's own household. That's Matthew 10, 34, 35, and 36. Jesus' talk of creating conflict, particularly in the family, is jarring. Particularly because we remember that one of his primary titles is Prince of Peace. But Jesus seems here to deny that it is his mission to bring peace. I was once in a Bible study where someone asserted that Jesus' words about bringing the sword in Matthew could possibly legitimize the concept of waging a Christian holy war. But that is only if we ignore Luke's repeated affirmations that Jesus is God's peace on earth. So, we need to be attentive to the context of what Jesus is saying here to avoid misinterpreting this passage. It's not the best sentence construction, but the question we have to ponder is what is the type of peace that Jesus does not bring? to us. Clearly, Jesus' words address the reality of the early church where Christians suffered extreme persecution. Families like Perpetua's were uh, traumatized when a loved one converted to this outlaw cult of Christianity. Jesus' words recognize that circumstance, that a choice to take up his cross, will create division. But this does not mean that creating strife, stirring up division, is Jesus' purpose. Far from it. What it does mean is this. Jesus did not come to bring peace at any and all cost. The status quo, peace defined as harmony, the accepted values of family, faith, and nation will be disrupted when Jesus' words and way become the defining component of our lives. And we simply cannot read the Gospels, without seeing that Jesus' teachings disrupt the accepted and acceptable patterns of family, religious, economic, and national life. Jesus' teachings disrupt all of that. So not everyone will respond positively to the good news that Jesus brings. Now over the years, I have noted that we tend to treat passages like this one as a call to get our priorities in order, to to take our faith more um, seriously, to to shape up uh, where we've been deficient. But that actually dampens Jesus' words here. And it is perhaps Jesus' words that are, are actually more challenging today when political propagandists so easily conflate the concept of faith and family values or when white supremacists and conspiracy theorists so easily hijack the symbols of Christian faith to justify and maybe even sacralize their aims. And of course, more mainstream politicians have too often done this as well. Later in Luke, Jesus will say something else that is rather jarring. Whoever comes to me and does not hate Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now, this expression to hate it is a it is a Semitic expression it's not the the same as that emotion that we feel in the the expression, I hate you, you know, when we say something like that. As a Semitic expression, and and as Jesus uses it, what it really means, hate means to to turn away from, to detach oneself from. So there's no way that Jesus' words here in Luke 12 and then later in Luke 14 uh, cancel out. All of his teachings, his his call to love and show compassion to neighbor, to strangers, to enemies, even non-believers. I mean, Jesus has already told the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That's that's just a couple chapters earlier. And so it, it has to make sense with that. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that when you live according to the gospel, good news of great joy for all people, as I am teaching you and showing you how to do, those you are closest to, they may not understand. They may not get it. They they might not agree. They, They might even take offense So I think what this passage makes clear is that the claims of Christ not only take precedence or priority in our lives, more than that, they redefine all of our other loyalties and commitments. So following Jesus inevitably involves some detachment from other agendas, other values Goals and relationships. It means that we will indeed die to self so that we can live for Christ. As one theologian writes, Jesus does not merely state that we have our priorities wrong. Rather, he says that now that we are in his presence, all of our relationships have been transvalued. If Jesus is the Messiah, it is absurd to think that we can follow Jesus while clinging to any of our priorities, other priorities. You know, to dig into this more deeply, I, I encourage you to subscribe to the St. Paul's Voyager podcast, go back and listen to our seven-week series, A More Christ-Like Christianity. That series was back at July 20th through September 3rd. Seven weeks. And those messages, those episodes, are among the most listened to uh, on our podcast. But I want to finish with this. Some Christians think that the reason that Jesus lived and died was to save those who believed to life beyond death. I think that it is far more biblical to think that Jesus showed all of us in his life and teaching and ministry how to die to self and so live for God alone in this world now and in hope of the next. And so let me say it again. Welcome to worship. Prepare to die. Amen.